0: Uh, So Romans 2, starting in verse 12, says, For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this morning. God, we want to come to you acknowledging that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. that you created uh, everything and you you hold it together, even as we meet here this morning, that all of creation is in your hands, Um, God, that you did not expend one uh, ounce of energy, Um, you were not depleted of any energy uh, to create everything that we see uh, and everything in the universe, Uh, you simply spoke it into existence. And we acknowledge, we can see that the universe, uh, it cries out the glory of God and, uh, and it listens to your command. Um, and God, we want to come to you this morning knowing that we need to listen to your command. And we pray that you would give us uh, power and insight by your spirit to uh, take the truths this morning in your word and apply it into our lives. Let's pray for this in name, amen. Well, uh, in life... At times, uh, we will encounter opportunities to take advantage of loopholes. And sometimes we can admire the fortitude it takes someone to take advantage of them. Uh, Sometimes we have disdain for people who take advantage of them. And sometimes they just give us a good laugh, like the kid who tried to buy uh, a jet using Pepsi points, you know? Uh, And once, as a child, uh, we were at McDonald's, and after our meal, uh, I was allowed to go play in the play place. But when my mom said it was time to go, I decided it was time to stay. And I told my mom that there was nothing that she could do about it because, see, there's this sign outside the play place that said, you had to be under this tall to go in. So I, using my impeccable logic, came to the conclusion that there was no way she could get me out, and I told her that she couldn't come in because a sign, because she's too tall. And you guess probably what happens? My mom starts to come in after me, and I come out crying like a little baby. Um, and parents, they just we just know, you know, how cunning we can be even from childhood. I mean, what parent hasn't heard something like, "Mom, I know you said to go to bed." but you didn't say I had to fall asleep. Or dad, I know you said to pick up my toys, but you didn't say I couldn't play with them again afterwards. You see, we count these things all the time. Um, in a loophole, it, it's generally, it's a way to uphold the letter of a law while undermining the essence of that law. And often, we don't like when people take advantage of loopholes because we naturally understand that there are moral laws that undergird the agreements, the policies, and the laws that govern our lives. And so to find a loophole is not just a violation of some written law, but it's a violation of a bigger moral law that that law was put in place to express. And so my main point in this passage is this, that the law of God, it is the standard of righteousness and it is both understood by and ingrained into all of humanity. So the law of God, it is the standard of God's righteousness and everyone knows it and everyone knows it at a deep level within themselves. And as we dig into this passage together, I want to explore three main points. Uh, first, that the law, it is required of all. Two, that it is understood by all. And three, that it is ingrained in all. And we'll have these up again throughout the rest of the message. But in this passage, the word law, it appears 11 different times and throughout the course of this week, as I've been digging in this passage, reading it, considering it, I just cannot get out of my brain the song, I Fought the Law and the... You guys know, yes. And in this passage, uh, Paul's point is one of the points he's making, is, that it is the law it will eventually win. And in this letter to the Romans, Paul, he has just made the point that God will dispense eternal life or or wrath to the Jew and to the Gentile with a judgment that is inescapable, with a judgment that is righteous, and with a judgment that is impartial or that is fair. And now what Paul's doing is that he's turning to justify why this is the case. And maybe what's happening is that Paul's, he's, he's trying to think of the critic who's asking the question, how can God be impartial when he gave the law to the Jew, but not to the Gentile. So we're going to begin this morning with the first point about how the law is required of all with that in mind. So the law, it is required of all. We see in verse 12 that it says, for all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So we're going to talk a little about Jew and Gentile. What what does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to be a Gentile? Well, to be a Jew meant you were a descendant of Abraham, and to be a Gentile meant that you were not. The term Gentile, it just generally means non-Jew. And the Jews were the ones who received the covenant of Abraham. That when God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, this is the covenant, says, go from your land, from your relatives and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. In speaking of this covenant later, uh, God adds this. He says in verse 7 of chapter 17, it says, I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And so the Jews, you know, they are the descendants of Abraham, they are inheritors of this covenant. And the Jewish people, the you know, Abraham and his descendants, eventually they find their way into Egypt. They are enslaved in Egypt. God delivers them out of Egypt, and they receive the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and many other additional laws. Eventually, the word Torah, meaning instruction or teaching, or law, was used to refer to those first five books of the Bible where those laws are found. And the Jews, they thought that because they were under the law, that they were virtually assured salvation on Judgment Day. Gentiles, however, were not those who were part of Israel, and therefore they were not under the law. They were without the law. But Paul says that in this passage, what he starts off, he says, for all who sin without the law. So his first point is that Gentiles sin even though they're without the law, meaning the special law that God gave to the Jews. And so they're not under or accountable to that law, but they are under a law. Uh, To put it another way, what what Paul's saying is this, the Gentiles are not lawless. They simply have less laws. That the special law of God given to the Jews wasn't, you know, they're not under that law, but they are people who are under a moral law of God. And Paul's point to the Jew here, though, is that though they are under the law, that they have sinned and will be judged by the law. And because they've been given moral laws, uh, they're even more accountable because they break the law with knowledge. It's like this. Imagine you're going 50 and a 25. And cop pulls you over. He said, "Hey, did you know how fast you're going?" He said, "Yeah, of course. Do you know it's 25?" "Oh no! Oh my goodness! I so missed the sign." You know, the cop is like, "Okay, well, I'm going to give you a ticket. I feel bad, but, you know, oh, there's a tree in front of the sign. Oh, you know, whatever." But but that's not what's happening with the Jew, because the Jew sees the sign. The Jew is given the law explicitly, and so when the cop pulls you over and you say, "Yeah, going 20, and 25 and 25," "Oh yeah, I saw the sign too." The judge is like, what? You saw the sign and you're, you are doubly accountable because you break the law with knowledge. And so it's wrong to steal, lie, kill, commit adultery. We all know this, but the Jew both knows this and was explicitly told it in the Ten Commandments. So building on this, Paul then says in verse 13, for the hearers of the law are not righteous before God but the doers of the law will be justified. And Paul here, he he is reiterating what he said in verses 6 through 8, and he's qualifying it in a a more particular sense. So what did he say in verses 6 through 8? He said this, "...he will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality." but wrath and anger to those who are selfish and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. And so Paul is reiterating that works are important and that only the doers will be justified or acquitted. But what he's also saying is that no one can perform any deed or work that will make them sinless that no one can commit any deed or work that will excuse them of their sin, because both sin. And Paul, his point in this passage is not to create a distinction between Jew and Gentile. He is drawing a unity between the two to say they both sin. One sins without the law, one sins under the law. And so God's judgment, it is impartial because everyone is under God's moral law. So Paul's que- next question, what, what comes up next is well, but isn't it unfair to judge someone by a law that they were never told about? You know that that seems kind of unfair, Paul. And Paul answers that question next, which brings me to the next point that the law, it is understood by all. That not only is the law, you know, applicable to all, that's required of all, that's this common standard, but it is understood by everyone. In verse 14, it says, So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So Paul's point, what he's saying is that it's not like the Gentile is driving 50 and a 25, not knowing it's wrong. What he's saying is it's like someone's driving 50 and outside their window, they see a school. And then they look at the clock on, on their dash, and they see it's 12.50 p.m. And then out of the school, they see hundreds of young children coming. On the sides of the street, they see mothers with their babies. I think we're going to have to transfer to the... I... <laughs> so, there we, are we good? Okay. So, so it's not as though, you know, if in this situation, you know, you look at a, someone in that circumstance, anyone in that circumstance, seeing hundreds of children around, seeing the school, seeing mothers with their babies on the side of the road, any person would look at it and say, it is wrong to drive at an excessive speed. And so you should not go 50 in that kind of situation. In fact, if anyone did, you would scold them. And it is so risky that it's wrong, and you know that it's wrong. You don't need a sign to tell you. Now, when Paul says that they are a law unto themselves, we have to understand what he is and what he isn't saying. He is not saying that we invent our own laws, and God is going to judge us by the laws that we invent. No, he judges us based on the law. And what Paul is saying is that everyone demonstrates a knowledge of that law by what they do with their own moral behavior. That they are, live a moral life, they make moral judgments, and therefore they know that there is a moral law. And it's common today in our culture to for people to ascribe to this idea of moral relativism. Uh, one way that people ascribe to this idea of moral moral relativism is by individualizing morality. Maybe you've heard people say, uh, "Well, what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for them is right for them, and there, you have no you should never judge those people." And so we try to individualize morality in a way that says, you know, we just can't make moral judgments across people. Or another way that people, uh, you know, ascribe to moral relativism is they try to demoralize legitimate moral issues. And they'll say things like, don't yuck someone's yum. They take a moral issue and they turn it into an issue of preference. And claiming moral relativism, it's, it's an easy intellectual way to try to avoid moral judgments, but you can never avoid the feelings of guilt. And it is ultimately an untenable and untrue position to hold. No one lives as though there are no morals in the universe. Sean McDowell, who uh, was going to be here this weekend for a conference, but that conference is Lord willing. He'll be here December 8th through the 9th for the conference on sex, gender, and the gospel, um, he had his high school students write poems about if moral relativism were true. And so this might be um, somewhat alarming, but I thought it'd be helpful for us to read this poem uh, from one of his students. So the poem is entitled, If Relativism Were True. The triggers pulled, heart cold as stone, body thrown into the sea. No tears are shed, though his brother is dead. He says, it was right for me. A woman is bruised, all black and blue. She silently drinks her tea. Her husband's eyes conceal the lies. He says, it was right for me. No blanket, no crib, no bedtime tales. Uh, Their baby will never be. The girl's too scared, too unprepared. She says, it was right for me. Sad but true, we live as though this system is key, but God's laws weren't meant to be bent or broken. Without them, we can never be free. And, and the poem draws out the, the, how it is just untenable to hold to moral relativism, that we all make moral judgments and no one can live like this, that so when you come face to face with moral relativism in its full, it is heartbreaking. And that's because God's laws, they were meant for our freedom. That God's laws were meant to give us a way to live that is in, in, in correlation with what He has made us to be, that we would find freedom by living out the way that He's designed us to live. And God's moral laws are understood by all, so it's his judgments, they' they're impartial because we know His law. And his understanding is so clear. That it is ingrained into each one of us. It's not just we kind of get it, it's that we do get it. So it brings me to that third point, that the law, it is ingrained in all. That it is ingrained into the, the core of who we are as people made in the image of God. Verse 15 says, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. On the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. So someone might say about my illustration of driving 15 and 25, well, hey, what you're doing there is, you know, the argument It really depends on if the person can can reason their way that it's wrong. So so it really depends on our ability to reason to discover these laws. And all analogies, they all break down at some point. I'll just be willing to admit this analogy probably breaks down at some point. But Paul's point here is that the work of the law or the conduct that it demands is written on the human heart. And the heart, it is the center or the core of who we are, including our mind and our emotions and our will. And it's from our heart that all of life flows. And the fact that it's written on human hearts shows that we are not responsible for this. We do not write it on our own hearts. Paul is implying that there is another who writes it on human hearts. And so God himself takes responsibility for this. And God himself assures that all people know the moral law of God and to help discern moral judgments. For help, to help discern that, he's given all people a conscience. And conscience, it just means with knowledge, you know, con science with knowledge, so the work of the law that he's talking about, the work of the law, it impresses on our hearts that which we must do. Or our conscience, it'll it'll accuse us if we don't do it. And I bet you, you know, if you're like me, you know, if you know, our conscience it, it screams at us at times. At times, you know, it just goes off. And if we meet God face to face, I bet you in each one of our cases, that the conscience, it would probably accuse us way more than it it excuses us. And one day, we're going to meet God face to face. And just like you can't keep anything secret from your conscience, you will not be able to keep anything secret from God. And so one day every sin will be exposed in the presence of another and our conscience will be in full agreement with God on that day. But the hope of the gospel is that the Spirit of God himself would write the law itself onto our hearts. That the Spirit, that the Spirit would give us a love to do those things which the conscience says we must do. And this is the kind of heart change that God is after and and that he brings about in the new covenant. In looking forward to this covenant in Jeremiah, it says this. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sins. Ezekiel, looking forward to this day, this is what it says in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. See, Christ, he performed the work of the law perfectly. In fact, he's the only true doer of the law accruing righteousness, earning righteousness. And he offers this righteousness as a gift to you and to me. And to receive this righteousness from Christ what must happen is that he must become your substitute in judgment. And that at the cross, what happens is that he is taking on the judgment of God, the wrath of God for sin, for you and for I. Why? So that we can have his righteousness. And for Christ to be your substitute in judgment, What is clear in the scriptures is that he must be your Lord. This is what Paul says later in Romans. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And apart from Christ on judgment day, we will all be accountable for violating God's law, which we all know. And if you reject Christ, not only will you be accountable for that, but you will also be accountable for your rejection of Christ. And I don't know, maybe you've gone through your whole life thinking that freedom is found in doing whatever you want. The true experience, though, is that that freedom has left you enslaved to sin, and you know it. And I don't need to tell you that you know it, because you do. And it's my hope that just as a fish finds freedom when being placed in the confines of a pond and not the air... (laughs) That you would find freedom by being placed in the restriction and confines of Christ himself. That you would be found in Christ, not with the righteousness of your own, but with his righteousness. And that is what we need to be right with God. And now as Christians, as as we, for Christians who who are considering, well, how, how does this apply to me? You know, this moral law, I am under this moral law, and yes, I also have a conscience. And so with the rest of our time, I want to explore how as Christians we should think about and l- our conscience, okay? So the first thing, first thing for us Christ- you know, Christians here in the room is I would encourage you to understand your conscience. We must understand our conscience, Okay. And I have kind of four things under here, four things we should understand about our conscience, okay? They'll be real quick. Uh, the first is that your conscience is mechanical. What I don't mean by that is that you could take a human cadaver, you know, open it up and identify, oh, look, there's that conscience thing we were talking about. Um, but what I, what I mean is that the conscience is not an independent personal force. It's not a Jiminy Cricket inside of you with its own mind about things. It's more mechanical. It's like the dashboard of your vehicle. It doesn't inherently define what is a good and it doesn't inherently define what is good. Um, It just evaluates when something's going wrong. And it gives you an alert to say, hey, something's not smelling right about your car right now. You You should pay attention to what's happening here second thing about the conscience is that it's fallible, or it makes mistakes, okay? Um, And because it's mechanical, because God alone is the only one that does not make mistakes, our conscience can make mistakes. So therefore, our conscience, it shouldn't be like the trump card, the end-all, be-all, the unquestioned force in your life. No, we should uh, have the freedom to question our own conscience. Um, so the third thing about here, about the conscience, is that the conscience should be informed. That as Christians, we should take time to inform our conscience. We all understand what's right and wrong from the universe, you know, the, the moral law of God, the creative order. But as Christians, we should take time to inform our conscience with God's world. Uh, you know, one way we can do that is just by paying attention to circumstances around us. We want to understand what's going on in the world, what's going on in people's lives, because we also need to inform our conscience with God's word. And God's word always needs to be applied in the circumstances of life. And so it's by God's spirit we can understand that and apply it into our lives. But we should also inform ourselves with God's people, because God's people also have insights into his word and his world. And so we should take time to inform our conscience. Recently, I had the front struts and CV axle uh, joints on my 2009 Toyota Highlander changed out. And um, afterward, my anti-brake system alarm, my ABS alarm, it was going off. So I was like thinking about it. I was like, I think, I don't... I don't think anything's wrong. Um, I think it's probably just a bad sensor or something. But I was like, I'm not going to risk that. <laughs> you know? Your ABS alarm goes off. You're like, i got to get my car in the vehicle now because I don't want to be left without brakes. You know? So I take it to a mechanic you know, who did the job. And he looks at it, and I said, yeah, it all looks right. You know, I'm, he's like, I'm sure it's just a, a bad sensor. So, so I took my car, and I drove to Colorado and back, and I was fine you know but i didn't just do that just think ah just nothing's wrong with my dashboard i i think i'm okay no i wanted to take it to someone who could give me some better insight into the alarms that i was seeing on my dash and informing our conscience, it's like checking the wiring on your dashboard to make sure you're getting a right reading on your vehicle. You know, we can often trust our conscience, um, like we can often trust our dashboard. We'll get into that. Um, but it's never a bad idea just to make sure it's not malfunctioning. Fourth thing about the conscience we should understand is that not all matters are matters of conscience. You see, the conscience operates in categories of right and wrong, and it'll tell us when we are doing something that's wrong. But wisdom, wisdom is what tells us what to do, and wisdom operates in a different way. Wisdom operates in a gradient of wise to unwise, and so confusing wisdom issues with moral issues, it'll create an unnecessary burden on our own conscience, and it'll make compromise with other Christians really hard to do. For example, um, you know, we should not disregard widows and orphans. If we disregard and do not care for widows and orphans, there should be alarms going off in our conscience. That is wrong. But wisdom, wisdom would tell us what to do, how to care for widows and orphans. And there are many, many ways that people can care for widows and orphans. And wisdom will help us to understand what what should we do. But not all matters are matters of conscience. Not all, what we should do is understand is that entertainment is not even a biblical category. That there is no command in the Bible that says thou shalt entertain thyself. This, this is not a commandment. But there are commands about, about not lusting. There's commands about setting your mind on things that are excellent and praiseworthy. There are things, commands about enjoying God's common grace in all things. Commands about loving your neighbor and commands about not worshiping any other created thing. And our conscience can alert us to violations of God's command. But we need wisdom to discern how to best love God and love others through our choices of recreation and entertainment. So that brings me my, my second point here about application for Christians, about what should we do. Well, we should understand our conscience, uh, but we must listen to our conscience as well. We must listen to it. And while we all have the conscience that is infallible, that, or that's fallible, sorry, that, that needs to be informed, the Bible says that as a general principle, your conscience is trustworthy. And towards the end of Romans, Paul gets into this. In Romans 14, Paul says, whatever you believe about these things. And what he's talking about, he's talking about eating food offered to idols, so, whatever you believe about eating food that had been offered to an idol, he says, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Meaning, if you think it's it's fine to eat food that was once offered to an idol, that's just food, like don't, don't you know condemn yourself because someone else thinks it's wrong. Just you know, keep between you know, yourself and the Lord. But verse 23 says, But whoever doubts, stands condemned if he eats because he's eating not from faith. And everything that is not from faith is sin. So in this situation, if someone thinks, you know, I think it's actually sinful to eat that food, then Paul says, well, don't eat that food. Because your conscience is trustworthy. You should listen to it. By default, as a general principle, you should listen to your conscience. And so the consequences. the reason is the consequences are, are really big. The consequences of ignoring the lights in your dashboard is that eventually you go nose blind to them and you run your car into the ground. And the consequences of ignoring your conscience is that you render it unresponsive and ultimately you can run your Christian life into the ground. Paul's letter to Timothy gets into a little bit of this. He says in verse one through two of chapter four, it says, now the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, Some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. And now while I might like my steak with a really good sear on it, we should never want this for our conscience. Our conscience, it needs to be responsive and we need to respond to it. The idea of searing your conscience is that you've violated it so often that eventually what used to set off alarms in your life no longer does so. When I was a freshman at Drake in the the dorms, uh, when the fire alarms went off, you were supposed to go outside. Um, Obviously, because it's a fire alarm. But after so many times of late-night fire alarms, eventually I decided not to go outside. I mean, I lived on the, on the first floor. I could crawl out my window if I needed. Uh, in my mind, I was like, ah, I'm, I'm fine, you know. Um, but eventually I found that I would sleep through a fire alarm because I had disregarded it so often. You know, this really loud alarm would be going off, and I'd just be, like, in bed, like, ah, turning over to the other side, you know. And if we get in the habit of not listening to our conscience, you know, we will not be sensitive to it and we will not hear when it goes off in our lives. First Timothy one, what Paul says, he says, now the goal of our instruction is this love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So we should recognize that love for others must come from a good conscience, one that is functioning well, able to discern right and wrong, and one that is free from guilt. See, if we want to offer people the hope of a changed life, we must back that up with integrity. And the danger of ignoring your conscience is not only damaging your Christian witness, but it's a surefire way to eventually walk away from Christ. Paul continues in his letter to Timothy, he says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and shipwrecked their faith. So where does the rubber meet the road in this? You know, do you allow yourself entertainment that crosses the line of your conscience? Does your choice in entertainment or recreation lead to a greater love for God and for his people? Or does it lead to feeding your own flesh? These are matters that, that you need to just, between you and the Lord, discern where, where is the line? Where, you know, what do I do in this situation? Two things that me and my wife have found helpful in our lives is, uh, well, on Sundays we we try to never watch more than one football game. <laughs> you know, if we watch more than one football game on a Sunday, uh, we feel lethargic. We just are. It is like we just want to lay around all day, and it's hard to really have motivation to do much more. It doesn't even feel restful to us, uh, and we're not energized for the rest of the week. So it doesn't lead to greater love for God when, when we watch tons of football all day on a Sunday. Another thing that we do, me and my wife, is that before we watch a movie, uh, we always look it up on imdb.com, you know? Uh, and we live in such an age where uh, we have access to all the parental guidance things about every single movie there is. We, we are without excuse you know, to, in terms of what we watch in many, many situations. And so I would encourage you to look into things before you watch them. And, and if you see something, you say, you know what, I really shouldn't watch this because I know that this is going to be an element of the movie. Then just don't, don't watch it. Find something else. Even if it's a less quality movie, you'll be much better in your walk with the Lord. And in, you know, between different people, your conscience and your wife's conscience, you know, they, they might have different sensitivities to different things. And you should be uh, just aware of those things. So definitely in me and my marriage, you know, there are things that I am sensitive to. That I'm saying, I'm never going to watch a movie with this or that. And there's things that Dina is sensitive to. She says, I'm never going to watch a movie with this or that. Which brings me to the third application for us here in the church, is that we should be sensitive to the conscience of others that we should be sensitive to other people's consciences. Because just as a good conscience is necessary to love others, our love for others should lead us to help them not violate their conscience. Paul, he's going to deal later again with this whole eating and drinking food offered to idols. And this is what he says. He says, so then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds others up. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It's a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. So Paul's point here is, you know, in matters of, of maybe conscience where it's like, oh, if you do that, it might be right for you, um, but it's going to maybe not be loving towards your brother. Uh, it's okay if you do it, but, but man, there's this thing, if you do this, you're going to cause your brother to stumble. Then just don't do it. The law of love would say just don't do it. And what does this mean for us? You know, uh, we're not probably eating food offered to idols in our culture. That's not like a thing. But what it means for us is that it's highly dependent on who your neighbor is. Speaking broadly in our culture, uh, some ways that this might come out is that, well, we just know a lot of people have struggled with alcohol. The people come to know Christ, and there still are addictions in their lives. And so, as Christians, we can should consider that even if it's not a problem for us, if large displays of alcohol is a loving thing to do towards my brother or sister, if it'd be a struggle for them. Similarly, parents, um, you know, they're given the responsibility to raise children. And social media is so prevalent, it's an an avenue through which the culture disciples children as well. And parents, they'll just maybe have different, uh, different convictions about how much access their child should have and when that comes. But we all know that our children, they're going to develop friendships with one another, they're going to spend time with one another, and they're going to be together. And so navigating those waters together as a church, understanding where principles of conviction are are, are with this family, with that family, it is just important. We should be open. We should be loving and charitable towards one another because we care about each other's walk with the Lord. And we care about their children as well. So there should be an attitude of love and of building one another up, even in matters of conscience. And so the law of God, it is the standard of righteousness required of, understood by, and ingrained in all humanity. And God has given each one of us a conscience that we are to inform and listen to as we seek by wisdom to live by the commands of God both personally and and together corporately. And there is no loophole to experience human freedom outside of the truest human that is Christ. And there is no loophole to maintain integrity in the Christian life outside of listening to your conscience. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you so much that you have poured out a love for us that before the creation of the universe, that you decided to send Christ for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us, God, help us to be filled with your Spirit, that we would love to do the things that we know we ought to do. And God, I thank you so much that, that you are after real heart change in every single person that you don't just seek after behavior modification, Lord. Um, And God, we thank you for the conscience. We thank you that you've given it to us to alert us, to guide us. Um, And we pray that you would um, help us to discern uh, where we need to listen to our conscience. Let's pray for this in your name. Amen.